An expectant hush has fallen over the electric uh, <laughs> so perhaps I should say something to fill the gap. Um, it's always uh, with some embarrassment that I uh, try to introduce uh, our Tanner lecturer, um, because typically they are people of such distinction that they are far better known to the audience than uh, um, uh, warrants a, a fulsome introduction. Um, this evening I'm trying to fill space whilst our IT staff uh, try to get uh, the screens up and going. Um, but Professors Duflo uh, and uh, uh, Banerjee are uh, no strangers to developing world technology uh, because they work very frequently uh, experimentally in the developing world as developmental um, economists. Professor Banerjee is currently the Ford Foundation International Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's also past president of the Bureau for Research in the Economic Analysis of Development, a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the Econometric Society, and has been both a Guggenheim Fellow and an Alfred P. Sloan Fellow. His area of research is development economics and economic theory. He most recently served on the UN Secretary General's high-level panel of eminent persons on the post-2015 development agenda. Yeah. Uh, professor Esther Duflo is a Professor of Poverty Alleviation and Development Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and is co-founder and co-director of the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab. In her research, she seeks to understand the economic lives of the poor with the aim to help design and evaluate social policies. She's worked on health, education, financial inclusion, environment and governance, and uh, is a recipient of uh, so many academic honors and awards that I would hesitate to begin to list them, uh, perhaps most notably the uh, MacArthur Fellowship in 2009. Together, Professors Banerjee and Duflo wrote um, the seminal work, Poor Economics, A Radical Rethinking of the Way to Fight Global Poverty, which in, uh, uh, published in 2015 and won the Financial Times Goldman Sachs Business Book of the Year Award, translated into 17 languages. Uh, this book was reviewed as the first evidence-based analysis of how poor people actually cope with poverty. It's a real pleasure to welcome both of them and uh, to also um, initiate the very first for the Tanner Lectures, which is a, a dual presentation. And I think, Professor Banerjee, you're going to kick off. So welcome. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for having me. Um, it's an honor to be asked to give this very distinguished lecture. Um, so we're going to, I mean, it's always a little bit hard to do a kind of this kind of t tag team effort. We'll try, try to do it smoothly. Um, I'll, what I, I'll start by kind of maybe talking a little bit about where we're coming out of and then start to get into the meat of it and then um, Esther will co tell you more of the meat and conclude with the real words of wisdom. Uh, I'll leave her to do the wisdom part of it. Um, so where do we start? Uh, we start with the fact that I think economists are really not, um, right now are not really not trusted by at least uh, the average person. So this is, a, this is on Brexit um, and if you look at who is above Economists, I think one of the so everybody's above economists, <laughs> uh, uh, but that includes uh, weather forecasters, uh, you know, sports commentators. Uh, we the only people we beat are politicians. Uh, that's that's a sad commentary on the world, but uh, but cer cer certainly one of the way quantifiable ways of 
saying that is that when there was a debate about Brexit, 66% of the population said that whatever economists have to say is irrelevant um, on this issue, so which, which is, has to be a bit frightening if you're an economist. Um, now, what do people think economists do? That's part of the problem, I would argue, is that people actually, on the <laughs> other hand, uh, get their sense of what economists do from people on TV who are usually, many people call themselves economists, some of them actually are economists, but a small minority. So there's, a, there's, a, there's also a, a little bit of a, you know, maybe a, a confusion of categories. Uh, so what do th people think people, uh, economists do? Well, they forecast the future of the economy, they build, try to build grand models of the economy uh, which um, kind of you know use lots of math and you know completely ignore all reality and try to try to try to describe something that is only in the heads of economists as this quote says and in all of this try to find ways to smuggle in their ideologies there you know especially uh, with use of elaborate mathematics. That's, that's uh, I think, not an unfair characterization of how m many people think about economics. Now, it, it's not entirely unfair. Uh, if, if you start with that view, then it's not entirely unfair that you have a negative view of economics. Um, for example, uh, this, this graph is, is, if you had to pick, predict the growth rates of countries, what that graph does is taken from the economist magazine. It, what it does is the Indi International Monetary Fund, which is one of the uh, great institutions of the economics world, it predicts growth rates. Uh, and you can see that essentially you can do pretty much as well by picking a random number or by saying that the growth is always 4%. Um, you know, the graph on the left is, is what you do if you, if you take the actual predictions of the IMF for a different frequency. You know, three months before, it's you should get it a little better. Uh, Twenty-one months before, when the prediction is actually useful, maybe because it's, it's it's not yet there, you you're doing pretty much exactly as, you know, predicting the growth rate of the previous year. That's that that's that's essentially. So it's not it's not an impressive performance, uh, um, especially the random one doesn't do much worse, um, and then so. There is also, and then there's this kind of this view, as I said, that people, economists are basically, you know, trying, trying to capture a very complex reality you know, by kind of telescoping it into mathematical models. Now, there's some truth to that, but in particular, there is a piece of economics which is especially seduced by the fact that now there is lots of, you know, lots of data and data visualization and machine learning and all those things, you can, you can sort of pretend that you can explain the world b by building some elaborate machine. Uh, this, this field is actually, it's a field called econophysics, where literally, uh, uh, kid you not, uh, which, which, which produces things like that. Um, uh, and which sort of seems to say that, look, you know, we're going to just, once we get the differential equation of the universe, economic universe right, we're just going to get everything down. Now, I think that's entirely based, based on a misunderstanding, primarily of physics. Because I think physics gets most of its power from the fact that for a set of, I think, very uh, unique reasons, a set of numbers in physics are very well pinned down. And because those numbers in are pinned down, the speed of light is pinned down more or less, uh, lots of hypotheses are inconsistent with it. So what physicists can do is they can build models where the parametrization is extremely precise. What, what economic, if you ask an economist, for example, what are parameters for building this model that we're going to build, uh, think of the, you know, what's the effect of raising taxes on how hard people work. Well, there are estimates which go from, there'll be for every you know, doubling, of the, uh, doubling of the tax rate, you'll, you'll get a 
10% reduction or a 200% reduction. That's, that, that's the range in which uh, we can pin down things. This is not because I would say we are bad at pinning it down, but because there is enormous heterogeneity in the world. People are not like particles, and I think that's an important reason why we, we don't, we don't, we are, I think our aspiration should not be to have single very precise parameters which we can pop into a model and then predict the world. And so I think this is just, this is actually not so much that they get economics wrong, they get physics wrong. Physics is functions by having very, very precise parameterization which, you know, you have an enormous universe to very precise, you to have, uh, to, be, to be consistent with the existence of that universe, you have to, you actually end up ruling out many, many values of the parameters and you can only consistently with a few. And that's, that's the reason why that works. It wouldn't work in any other field pretty much. Um, but certainly doesn't work in. So, and I think there is some truth to this suspicion of ideology. This is my third, third, the third, third, I think, criticism of economics. Uh, I think economists love uh, free trade and I think it's true and we've experienced this often. If you actually end up questioning that, there is in immediate and rather well-organized pushback. So I, I think there is ideology, despite the fact that as Krugman says here, there is not really that much evidence that, you know, uh, you know that international trade will, uh, you know, has huge positive benefits for everybody. I think that evidence is at, at best weak. Uh, so given all that, I think, so all these claims are true, but I think what, this is not what most of me, what I, I'm going to be, you know, put my cards on the table and this is, in some sense, this is an act of, of um, you know, self-justification, so uh, you should read it as such. Uh, I don't think this is what we do, actually. Almost no one in, no, none of my colleagues ever predict the future of the macroeconomy. At MIT, we have 35 economists. I don't think anybody ever does this. Uh, people on TV do that. Uh, we don't build the universe model of the grand universe. Uh, quite the contrary. Um, we we might defend specific pieces of ideology, but not necessarily the same one. So there is lots of diversity. I think I have my own particular uh, stake on in the ground and particular pieces of ideology do stick to me, but I, I think I defend different ones from other people. It's not that we all agree on which ideology to defend. Uh, I think economists are mostly, academic economists spend a lot of time being very, very careful in saying that a fact is a fact, like this is where enormous amount of our effort goes, and then to identify what is behind that fact. And we do a fair amount of fairly careful and very narrow thinking on that. The thinking is, I'm not saying the thinking is right, but it's certainly not dr driven by uh, the desire to project an entire view uh, model of the universe. It's really understanding why is it that, you know, you, the education system in the US is no longer producing the same outcomes as 15 years ago. That's what, uh, someone might be studying. And I think through this work, I think we built a fairly useful toolkit. I would say what we do at best is if you build a toolkit, if you see a problem, what are, what are, what you may either sort of react to naively or you might ask, is this really the problem? Is the problem I see the problem that I should be treating? And often those are not the same things and we often end up doing a pretty good job of just getting us past the most obvious towards thinking harder about that question. That's I think what we do most successfully. We, we teach people to ask questions to the obvious and I think we do a good job of that. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of what we do. I do think that we keep almost all of this out of the public discourse. So what, uh, what we will try to do in this lecture is a bit expose the dirty secret, which is that there is actually, we are actually not as, neither as confident, nor as ideological, nor as, nor as prescriptive as uh, you might think the profession is. And we, we, we certainly don't have a, um, we won't tell you what the interest rate will be in 15 years, and largely because we have no idea.
so in particular, I think we're going to come out of one very specific part of economics. This, what I will talk about is actually kind of very core topics in economics, migration and trade. But we come out of this as development economists who often spend a lot of time doing very, very hands-on research in many different places in on the ground. So we, our particular experience that, that will inform this is actually uh, maybe gives us a slightly different perspective on these things. So we, we're certainly not going to have the time to give you a kind of o comprehensive overview of everything we know. We'll give you a very slanted take. But I, th I, th I think one thing we're going to do is we're going to suggest that there are actually a few things that we all, all the economists agree on, but the, those dots are rarely connected. And so we'll, what, what we, one of the things we try to do is just connect those dots and see what that means. And I think it's what I think the main claim we're going to make is that if you actually connect the dots, you, you change your view of the world. You don't have to actually say something entirely un, un, uh, sorry, new and original. If you just take what most people would, most of the data says, and you look at it a bit harder, you will actually fi find that you know uh, it doesn't mean what you think it means. So let me try to illustrate that. So most economists like migration. These are answers to to a, a group of economists, um, including me actually, uh, who who are given asked to give opinions on many things every week, and this is one of the things we give opinions on. And you can see that most economists, a majority of economists, like migra migration. Some don't, but most economists think that migration, international migration, is a good thing. Um, even for low-skilled American workers, it wouldn't be a uh, disaster. Most people in the world think otherwise, though you can see in the US, interestingly, Mr. Trump is actually helping in a little, uh, in his own way, in the sense that you suddenly start to see a decline in the number of people who, who think migration is, is a, most people still think migration is a bad thing, but less people think that after Mr. Trump. Um, <laughs> uh, in, in Britain, again, people basically a majority thinks immigration level, le levels are too high. Um, and the other fact, which I want to emphasize and come back to, is that most people think skilled migration, on the other hand, is a great thing. Okay, so, you know, unskilled migration is what people are against, all those. sort of people from funny places with mm, funny degrees or no degrees. That's, that's what people are against. So the reasoning is very simple. And that's sort of where I think this is the sort of the seduction of economics. You know, you, this is what you learn in whatever, in your one economics class you ever took before you decided it was boring. Um, and so you have a labor supply curve and a demand curve. And when you, if you have immigration, then the, the supply curve moves. And when the supply curve, uh, the demand, uh, the supply curve moves, the demand curve stays the same. As a result, the price goes down. This is some, this is, this is essentially all of analysis of migration uh, in most of the media. Um, now, this is, there is actually a very large literature in economics which points to the fact, and very carefully done, uh, looking mostly at episodes where, for some reason, a large number of migrants ended up in one place. So for example, uh, there was the Mariel boat lift, which is a boat lift of Cubans. All of them were brought to, uh, to, uh, to Miami, or uh, the PNOR, who returned from Algeria to France, and each of these experiments have been studied in detail, looking very carefully at what happened just after, using comparable <coughs> places. Uh, the, uh, or you can look at the opposite, which is what happens when the fruit pickers in the US, the US basically used to have fruit, fruit pickers in the 
called Braceros in the 1960s and then that one other anti-immigration push stopped them. When that happened, what happened to local wages? Did people suddenly become much richer? The answer is no. So very little uh, evidence that um, large waves of migration do anything. And interestingly, and this is the only place where there is perhaps more, at least clearer evidence that immigration has negative consequences for the native population is high-skill migration. When you get migra migrant uh, nurses from India, that keeps nurses' wages down. That's, that's where, so high-skill migrants, the exactly the opposite of, in a sense, what, what people take as, as the obvious fact about the world. Now, why is that the case? One thing that economists sometimes emphasize, and is completely reasonable, which is that migrants consume. After all, it's not just that they uh, come, they uh, work, and they get nothing for it. When they work, they get incomes, and they consume. So that increases per, uh, potentially the demand curve. It reduces costs, and therefore re raises real incomes. Uh, other, so people have more money to spend on other things. And they sometimes increase labor supply. This is something that somebody actually, uh, this is the kind of thing that somebody actually showed. Uh, looking carefully at the what happens when nannies uh, become more available, uh, the labor supply of high-skilled women goes up. Women are more, it's easier for women to work when there are more nannies available. So this is a, these are arguments which are uh, often made. I think what, is, uh, what I want to emphasize actually is the, that the arguments that are not often made. I think one of the things that's actually uh, fairly obvious is that migrants actually do jobs that nobody else wants. Um, uh, that's, that's perhaps the fruit picking is a job that no one wants to do and uh, migrants uh, do it. Um, they play, go to places where no one wants to go. If you look at uh, doctors uh, in rural Tennessee where they are all violently against all immigration, they all come from India or uh, Zambia or Zimbabwe or somewhere else. I mean, it's not, um, so it's, they, they go where no one wants to go. Um, second, uh, this is a reason why they do that. Because for most jobs, it's very hard to compete against the, the incumbent group. Partly because the incumbents have, uh, they have, you have experience with them. You know who they are. And most employers don't wa want the cheapest person. They want someone who's actually A, knows how to do the job. B, it can be relied on to not you know, do something disastrous. So employers tend to be prejudiced against um, you know, new people of the street. So there is a strong bias. The reason why immigrants often end up in these marginal jobs is precisely because employers don't particularly want them in, the, in those jobs. Second, to get jobs, 50% of many jobs uh, you get by uh, have knowing somebody in the firm. Or, and if you're an immigrant who, who, who has no connections, you can't get those jobs. So first, there is really, it's very hard for uh, migrants to get the jobs that um, that are um, you know are um, are uh, sort of the native population is m mainly occupying. Second, a lot of the, for very there are very good reasons why most native workers don't want to move. They have they have a home. They have friends. They have connections. So when jobs show up in a different place, you don't get people to move that easily. And so one other reason why migrants are Useful. So these, in that sense, migrants are really competing for. That's the reason why they don't have much of an effect. Now, this is uh, why, uh, worth an, an aside. One of the things that's, uh, and it's a, because it's important for connect, connecting up to something else. I'm going to say in a, in a bit, in a minute. So Americans. So wh when I say this, obviously there's this presumption that people aren't moving. Now, Americans think of themselves as very mobile. And you know, this is how the Tocqueville described Americans. They were restless people. Now, it turns out that mostly uh, Americans are no longer restless. They were inter-county mobility. 
how many people have used to live in this county and live in that county the next year has halved since the 1950s. Within county mobility has halved since the 1950s. So people are just moving less. Why are they moving less? Well, partly it was always true that changing occupations is hard, but increasingly what's happened is that the, the menu of occupations has changed. So it's no longer possible for to be a miner in a different place, a miner now is required to become a, you know, a Walmart employee. And that's just a different life, a different uh, vision of, of what it means to be working and therefore people don't want to do those things. Second, the boom is concentrated recently, in the recent years in a few coast, old coastal cities. These are often university towns, there's a, there's a connection there which is not accidental I think, with tight zoning regulations and high real estate prices. So it's very expensive. For a janitor, housing costs would be 52% of their wages. So janitors do, would rather work in South Carolina and get paid you know, a third less, but at least they will pay a lot less in wages. The real wages are just higher in, for a janitor in in South Carolina. That's the nature of the, the boom has been very, very anti-low-skill uh, low uh, in terms of its location. And, you know, and also the, you know, just specific things like the fact that lots of people are under, you know, the houses are uh, underwater. They don't, they can't sell it for anything. Therefore, they don't move. Now, that's, so that's one side of it is that Americans don't move. Uh, they don't want, they don't really, immigrants come into jobs that they don't want. On the other side, do the immigrants want to come? So are the hopeless hordes working, waiting at the gates? Both economists and, public, and the public seems to agree that that part of it is at least true. That if we just open the gates, they have people who computed how much world GDP would go up if you open, open the gates. And some economists really want all immigration uh, restriction removed and this will have enormous welfare effects. The problem is that it's been documented for many years that the wage differential within the same county between the village and the uh, city are, are, are substantial. Even within the US, certainly within developing countries, this is a well-known fact that people don't move. Uh, they don't equalize real wages. Um, it's uh, and Part of the problem is that he, this argument somehow doesn't connect to the argument. You remember I was just telling you about why migrants don't uh, lead to a fall in wages. That's a set of factors. Here's another set of, now we are talking about migrants and so we were first going to, we are economists, we like migration. So we say, we may we come up with some arguments to say why migrants don't re reduce real wages. Now when we switch to this other question, you know, do migrants, will my migrants uh, uh, show up at the gate? We forget all those reasons. We don't connect those dots. Uh, because once you think about the reasons we said why migrants are not going to displace the domestic workers, that's also the reasons why migrants don't want to come. Um, now, when I say that, you'll say, well, how about those people, oops, on in boats? So th this is a... I'm, I'm going to give you a second to read. It's a wonderful piece of uh, poetry by this Somali British poet. Um, and I think the line you want to th hold on to is you'll only leave home when home won't let you stay. So those people are running away from something. They're not running from the poorest places. Even Yemen is not a very poor country. The very poor countries, people are not Liberia. Nobody's leaving. People are leaving Yemen. And there's a reason for that. Uh, but more importantly, if you look within countries, people don't migrate. This is a well-known fact. Economists have been worried about it for many years that they don't migrate. In fact, uh, there are these nice stories about there was a uh, in in the in Iceland there was a a volcanic explosion. Uh, the volcanic explosion um, led some areas of Iceland being covered with lava. As a result, a bunch of people had to be evicted. When they were evicted, uh, everybody obviously thought that those people <coughs> will end up worse off. Look at them down the road, 
they're getting $25,000 more. In other words, they were, they, if they had migrated, they would be making $25,000 more. Instead, they stuck on with their parents' profession and ended up making a lot less money. Um, si similar example from Finland where uh, the war dips displaced ended up much richer than the ones who were not displaced, um, and so on. Um, here's a, another example from Bangladesh. Uh, people were, people are often, in part of Bangladesh, people starve during what is called the hungry season. During that season, uh, they, the consumption of the families are about 1,400 calories, which is really dangerously low. Um, and yet, uh, people don't go to the city to get a job. If you give them the amount of the bus fare to go, go and you know, try and find a job, they go. And as a result, well, some more people go, about 20% more go. And um, that increases calorie intakes by you know, five, five, six hundred calories, earnings by 35, 40 percent. So everything's much better, very, very cheap intervention, huge returns. Why don't they do it? Why don't they just go? Um, and even when you give them free bus fare, only 20 percent more people go. The rest don't go. So, you know, and um, if you give them just information, here's a job, no one goes as a result of that. If you've gone once, got a job, had a better one year, the next year, half of those extra people don't go. So even if you, you feel your chance, conditional on having gone uh, off once and found a job of getting going again is uh, about 50%. So you know, people, isn't, people really don't want to uh, do it. I think that's, and why, why is that? Now this is where I go back to this point I was making. Go back to thinking about why within the US the migrants are, um, are not competing with the domestic population. Well, the flip side of that is the migrants don't want to go there because the jobs are horrible. Uh, that's why they are available to them. The living conditions are horrible. That's why they, the domestic population doesn't want to go there. Uh, you're, you're moving away from friends and family, which no one wants to do, including the domestic population, and you lose status. You know, you wear, a, you wear somebody in your village, especially the poorest people can't afford to migrate. The people who can actually afford to migrate tend to be some middle class in the village. And for them, you know, going to some random place where you, nobody knows you and doing the worst jobs, the most menial jobs, is kind of not, not that fun. This is a picture of Delhi slums, uh, and people are actually very conscious of the quality of life. I mean, one thing we, I think one, a general point I want to make is that we think of poor people as sort of think of caring only about earnings. But they articulate very well that that's not how they see their own lives. Uh, this is sort of that ev evidence of that. They say, complain a lot about the living conditions. They're very conscious of the fact that they live, the air is bad. That's one thing they keep saying. Um, in addition, uh, you know, jobs are, you know, there's, uh, there's it's enormous uncertainty. People, people don't want to uh, sort of take on the, uh, you know, you, you go somewhere, you don't find something, you come back. Uh, people actually don't know very much. So one of the things, there's a student of ours which show, shows uh, that migrants think the probability of dying if you go to a Gulf country as a you know prime age male migrant is about hundred times what it is in reality, so people have so for all of those reasons my point is all for all of those reasons um, there's a there's people are is receiving countries are slow to move to different jobs and occupations the migrants also don't move in other words the reason why migration is a smaller deal than it's made out to be is by because, because the domestic population doesn't want those jobs and the migrants don't want them either. So it's not that you, when you open the doors, everybody's going to come and rush in and drive the wages down. Nobody's going to come and the wages, and we, we, the ones who come are going to not drive the wages down. So I, I don't think that is, I think, in other words, in some ways I think, and this is going to be very important, the fact that there is a lot of stickiness is going to be very important 
for thinking about the economy in general. And that's what Esther will talk about. Do I need to do something about microphone? Do you have me? Uh, this should be on. OK. Uh, can you can hear just, me? Can I just check? OK, can then check? fine. No, they can hear me, and she can hear me. So we're good to go. Uh, so uh, I'll continue talking about one example, uh, another example, take another example, and try to do a little bit the same, same effort. I'll talk about trade. So uh, on, uh, on, tr on immigration, actually, there are some debates. There are some people on both sides. Uh, there are a few people on the migration is bad for native worker side of the debate, not very many in the profession. But on trade, uh, at least no one agree, no one uh, in that uh, panel of uh, luminaries in economics, well, I'm not, actually. Uh, um, is uh, uh, ventures a negative opinion on it. So this was along the steel and aluminum tariffs uh, that was before the China tariffs. 65% um, strongly disagree that it's a good, that it will improve American welfare. 28% merely disagree. No one is even uncertain. Also, it doesn't add up to 100 because they, they just count the out of the people who are in the panel who answered. So another thing is that many people took the trouble to actually answer the question. That's how strongly they feel about it. Uh, if you ask people, same divide, uh, actually like immigration, the, the American politics has made it uh, more of a divided issue and more of a partisan issue. But you can see that on average, 41% uh, of people uh, support the tariffs. Even 22% uh, of the Democratic voters support the tariffs, even though they really don't like Trump. And 35% uh, oppose, and 25% have no opinion. So more people uh, think it's a good idea than think it's a bad idea. So again, you have that uh, kind of disconnect between the, the uh, public and the economist. And unlike migration, I think we are going to come closer to uh, at least understanding where they're coming from. And yet, this is a piece of theory that, of all the piece of theory that we are doing economics, we collectively, that, that that's also true for, for me, are uh, uh, the most proud of. Uh, in fact, Samuelson uh, uh, was asked once by his challenge was one of his uh, colleagues, Stan Ullman, to say, it, try to name one piece, one economic theory that's not, that is both true and not obvious. And he named, uh, he named uh, the theory of comparative advantage as being true uh, that, uh, and also not being obvious because most people haven't understood it. Um, and uh, uh, what's the idea is that uh, of comparative advantage is that if there is international trade, you can focus on what you're the best at within your own country. And you're always best at something. Therefore, trade will be beneficial because each country can benefit what they are best at. And from that basic uh, insight, uh, um, um, a beautiful uh, trade theory developed, including one uh, that I'm going to talk about to, uh, today called the Stolper-Samuelson theorem, uh, which makes the assumption that uh, work workers can uh, seamlessly reallocate across sectors. You can see why that assumption is going to uh, be problematic, given what Abidu talked about. If you're willing to make this assumption, then the factor that the, the people who are going to benefit the most are the people who are the most numerous in the country to start with, because countries are going to go towards them. Which means that unskilled worker would benefit the in poor countries, skilled worker would benefit in rich countries, unskilled worker will lose, but the aggregate gain should be large enough that people can be compensated. In other words, the, the, the pie will grow, the direct effect will be a, a redistribution of the pie away from the poorer people in the rich countries, but we can compensate them in another way, okay? So the problem is that uh, uh, that theory has not uh, done super well on the, on in, in reality, in particular starting with the poor countries. There have been a number of very sudden, uh, uh, very well identified uh, tra trade liberalization episodes in many uh, countries between the 80s uh, and uh, 90s, Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, India, Argentina, all of them has been associated with an increase in inequality. So uh, uh, you know, the first one, you sort of thinking something else happened. The second one, you think something else happened at the same time, and the third one too. And in fact, some, something else probably did happen at the same time in a lot of those countries, because usually it's in the context of many other things. But still, prima facie, it doesn't look all that good. 
uh, for, the, for the theory. In India, uh, uh, there was no disaster. Another thing, that a bunch of people also have predicted disasters when uh, a, a large economy that was largely autarkic like India opened. There was no disaster either, just not much happened in a way until much, much later, uh, 2000s, where the growth really accelerated. And one thing we can look uh, at in India is to look at uh, what happens uh, to uh, different parts of India, India's uh, hundreds of districts, which were more or less exposed to uh, trade liberalization. Again, in the world that uh, trade economists inhabit, you shouldn't see any effect because people would move. If a district is loses in industry because of uh, reducing the tariffs, then the people who are in this industry should move elsewhere, uh, where new jobs would be created because of the, uh, the trade opportunities that are opening for India. So uh, what the student of ours did is that she uh, computed an, ex uh, um, an index of how much each district of India was should have been affected by liberalization, <laughs> starting from where they had, where, which industries they were specializing in, with the idea that all the tariffs went from wherever they were, all over the place, to zero. So places that, uh, that were specializing in goods that where the tariffs were high to start with experienced a larger decline. The question is, are the people in this uh, areas suffering more than or benefiting less than other areas. <coughs> and what she found is that that is the case. This is generally a, a, a moment where India was doing quite well, so poverty reduced, but it reduced less in places that were affected more by liberalization. But that shouldn't be possible because people should have been going, right? Uh, and in fact, when uh, her people first came out, there was a lot of uh, resistance to, to, to it. But in fact, this is back to the sticky economy that we discussed in the case of the migration. People don't, they just don't move or don't move enough. Don't move enough across district barriers, don't move enough from occupation to occupation. Now, why is the Indian economy so sticky? So we have already seen that there are many reasons why workers are not going to move as much. But then the question is, why are the firms not coming to them? If they are not moving, why aren't the, in places where wages have fallen a lot because people are, can't, can't be farmers anymore? Why isn't a, a garment factory coming in and setting up shop? And there, there are various reasons. Uh, labor regulations is one that sort of limits what firms can do. Uh, the, the credit market, uh, which makes it difficult for firms to, to, to borrow. And one that we want to really uh, insist on in the case of trade specifically, for a developing country trying to, answer, uh, to enter the trade area is reputation. So the problem with trade is that uh, you can't just uh, uh, improvise yourself as, uh, say, a, market f a carpet manufacturer. In fact, even if you are a carpet manufacturer, as it turns out, and have been manufacturing carpet all your life, it actually takes a lot of effort to go from doing your carpet to actually selling it uh, uh, via this website, Design Within Reach, maybe who finally, uh, in the context of the project I'm going to talk about, uh, eventually imported those carpets uh, to sell them. So why is it, so how do I know that? I know that because there was a, a, a lovely paper by a um, uh, bunch of uh, uh, <coughs> people, including a, a colleague of us, David Atkin, who tried to, uh, their, their final objective was to test the idea that as you enter uh, international trade, you become better at what you're doing. So your quality improves, your productivity improves, because uh, you're exposed to different ways of doing things. That was their idea of testing that. But for that, they had to generate uh, um, a demand, an, an increase in the demand from the US or Germany or whatever for, for those carpets. So what they did is that they worked in an area which was f w very famous in Egypt for carpets, with a group of people very famous for being good at carpets. So you would think this is a good environment, but they were only selling them domestically, mostly for tourists and hotels. And that they worked with an NGO that tried to generate contracts for uh, exporting these carpets to, to the US. And uh, uh, that was great, but the bottom line is that it really took them forever between 2010, when they started, uh, to uh, really started to get any traction in terms of their carpets being purchased. 
one out of the seven, one out of each seven attempts to create a context actually did work out. Uh, uh, they had a, a lot of failures. The, 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 the people were not happy, or they refused the context, <laughs> or the clients actually misbehave, etc. So creating that demand, even though those are people who know what they are doing, turned out to be very difficult. So imagine a setup where you want to benefit from the low wages to start improvising yourself as a, a shirt manufacturer in the middle of India. It's just not, it's not going to happen. So why is it difficult? Well, the, 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 the foreign buyer basically want quality. And the, problem, the fundamental problem is that foreign buyer, ultimate buyer, are so much richer than the person who, who, build, who makes the product, is that the person who makes the product has no way to compensate them for their time if it's not working out. So you have to deliver a perfect product because you have no way to compensate them for their time if they don't like the carpet. And therefore, that creates this, this uh, huge difficulty even specifying what constitutes quality, hence the need for repetition. And we see that at, at, the, at, this, at the carpet level, but also in the software level. Uh, the two of us did a study long time ago where we studied the Indian software industry. And what's striking about the Indian software industry is that in principle, they do customized software. You really need nothing to do customized software, one computer, one person. And yet, all of the big industrial houses are doing uh, customized software, are set up in, in customized software shops. And you don't see, like, you see some, but uh, less than you would expect of the many, many small firms. And the reason is that the many, many small firms are dying because at the very beginning of their life, they need to take on all the risk of the project in order to establish a reputation. And that creates an entry cost in an industry where there is no entry cost. And that makes international trade uh, much more, uh, uh, it creates also this kind of uh, barrier between the benefits of international trade and the poor countries. How about the rich countries? So the rich countries, the problem with the rich countries is what I already talked about, about the very low uh, mobility of the workers in the rich countries. People do not move, they, do, they don't move regions, they don't move sectors. As a result, you can employ the same strategy of looking at areas that were really affected by competition from China. In a perfect Stolper Samuelson world, you'd see nothing. But in reality, you see that regions that were really affected by the entry of China in WTA because of their initial product mix, uh, they lose jobs, their wages go down. And then because they don't take up, and I'll go back to that when I talk about policy, they don't take advantage of existing trade adjustment programs. What they do take advantage of is disability. So what you see is drop from the labor force, increases in disability roles. And like in developing countries, the, country, the, the investment is not moving back. It's not moving to the Earthland. You have you know, uh, uh, vents in a, in a bus uh, talking about the revival tour, but it's just not, uh, it's like anecdotal compared to the fact that all of the investment continues to go to the coast and nothing goes in the into the middle. Why is that? Well, no one wants to live there. I think that's a problem. And uh, there is also a lot of uh, a tendency for people to like to cluster together, uh, which, uh, uh, limits the which makes it dif very difficult to, be to become a comeback kid. So summing up, before, because of the sticky economy, trend is much less beneficial in poor, in poor countries than would ex expected, although it, it's not a disaster either. And it's much more uh, detrimental to the poor in rich countries than we, would have, than we would have believed. It is not just that you have to compensate them at the margin a little bit. Uh, it is that you have very specific people who were in the wrong industry at the wrong time who uh, suffer a lot. What does it tell us? What does this all, what we said until now, tells us about policy? So I think the big point is that ignoring stickiness uh, when thinking about policy has been uh, fairly disastrous. In rich countries, this uh, loss of jobs, loss of uh, wages has also been associated with, or seem to be causally associated with uh, uh, raising opioid epidemics, which is stronger there, raising suicide, which are also stronger there, more vote for extremes, which you know, affects all of us uh, uh, by externalities has been tied to anti-immigrant feeling, even though we said that the poor immigrants have nothing to do with it. In poor countries, inequalities are increasing as well from people who are equipped to take advantage of the liberalization and people who are not. So you have in inequality increasing both in poor and in rich countries. 
So what to do? Well, in rich countries, to some extent, the failure of policy is self-inflicted. So uh, economists and policymakers don't like to help specific people, like people, they like to have policies that are not earmarked. But it turns out in this case, we know who is affected. So we could just go much deeper into, into helping them. Uh, so go back to the idea of place-based policy. But I would go even further, potentially, and go I helps like specific people in specific, specific forms in the way that the trade adjustment program works. So basically, we have, in fact, there is an instrument, which is called the trade adjustment program, which is almost not used, and which actually turns out to be effective when, in the little way that it is being used, we could really increase that a lot. In poor countries, uh, neither international nor migration is going to be the silver bullet <coughs> to make the poor poor. Uh, but things that are going to help mobility of goods, of capital, of factors, transport, low-income housing, education, social safety net, uh, would, uh, would, uh, could potentially be things that are going to pave the road for whenever something happens, a trade liberalization or growth or whatever, uh, that people could take advantage of it because they would be ready to, they would be able to move sectors or, or location to take advantage of the possibility. More broadly, I think if, if you want to keep like one, uh, one thought in mind, uh, as we were coming here, we were discussing what should be like the one uh, uh, summary line, is um, where we have, where we as economists have a complete blind spot, and mind you, we share it as well, is uh, uh, the over, uh, the we are too uh, enamored and too, uh, too convinced by our own uh, sense of that people should respond to economic incentive in a narrow, uh, defined sense of the way. That if there is a big difference in wage, you should move. If there is a lot of money to be made, you should, you should, you should make the money, etc. But in fact, uh, and it goes back to this idea of human values and, uh, and the human race, people care. And, and that sounds lame, I realize, as, as, I, as I said, but maybe it's not that lame for an entire profession that has made a big effort to ignore it. That people care deeply about many other things other than, uh, other than their wage. I think they care much more, for example, today uh, about their values and about uh, what their, sense, their own sense of what is their identity than about the, 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 the money per se. And some of the disasters that is happening today in the in the richer countries are more about the sense of uh, uh, status than about, uh, about uh, income per se in a large way. So I'm going to stop here and maybe we can open for questions. <laughs>